I've heard quite a number of um, opinions as to John's state of belief um, because he asked the questions, go, ask Jesus, are you the one or do we wait for another? I don't think we'll ever categorically satisfy ourselves on that one, but uh, I don't take it to be anything of any great detriment against John. But it certainly sets a scene and it gives us um, an opportunity to see how Jesus deals with these things. So we're going to look at um, the verses really from um, verse 24 through to 28 this evening. And what we see here is, is a question and an answer or answers if you want to take each individual part. But you can say it's an answer because he answers multiple points uh, in, in one go. The disciples of John came to Jesus and say, are you the one or shall we look for another? And after performing a number of miracles, which are more or less just passed over in in, in effect um, in one sentence, and in the same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. Uh, we... We have a whole raft of miracles that were performed in a, in a short space of time and literally just passed over in one verse. You do wonder sometimes, don't you, about these people? How many blind people were there at the time? How many plagues were there at the time? But they were all, or not all, but a number of them here were healed. And it just goes to show we have no real grasp of the scope and extent of the miracles that Jesus performed. We have a number recorded. And we just touched on one as we read through it there, the, the raising of the widow of Nain's son. And we have a list of them that were performed in that same hour. Then Jesus says, go, tell John what you've seen and heard. Because what they heard was the gospel being preached to those who were in need. As well as those who were physically in need, there were those who were in need of spiritual healing. Blessed is he who shall not be offended in me. And then when they had gone back to tell John, so it wasn't for their benefit what follows, and wasn't for John's benefit, it was for those who were gathered. He asks a question. <coughs> and we'll read verses 24 to 28 again. And what when, and sorry, and when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went ye out into the wilderness for to see? A reed, shaken with the wind. But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment. Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in the king's courts. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare 
thy way before thee. For I say unto you, among those that are born of a woman, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So, the question that Jesus asks, what went ye out to see? And the first thing we notice about that question, it is a repeated question. We have a three-peat. A question, a repeat, and then a third. So it's three times put before the people. And why do we have repetition in the scriptures? I know I make this point. I'm repeating myself here by making this point once again, but I find it to be a very helpful point. Why do we have repetition? Because it's important. Because we might have missed it the first time. So we have it again. We have it again. We have it for emphasis. As I was just um, getting myself ready in the, in the vestry there before the service, I was just thinking about this particular point. And even in terms of the repetition, if you think of uh, Psalm 136, we have perhaps the most repetition of anything in the scriptures. I don't know if any of you can remember or can finish the sentence. If I give you the half, do we repeat it? Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods. Mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord of lords, for his mercy endureth forever. And it repeats itself a number of times. What is the great lesson that the psalmist wants us to take from Psalm 136? His mercy endures forever. So it is not vain repetition, it is powerful repetition. Vanity of vanities. It's a repetition right together to compound, to amplify. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Repeat. It's so true that it has to be repeated. And there's a passage in in Mark's gospel talking about hell where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And that is repeated. That is used three times in, in, in quick succession. So the question is asked because it's and repeated because it's important. It's important to think about these things. Why did you go into the wilderness to see John? Why did you go? And what Jesus had the opportunity there to do was to build. And he gave three different answers. So it is a repeated question. The second thing we will notice about it, it is a personal question. The disciples of John had gone, so it wasn't for them. John would not hear this because his disciples had left by this point, so it wasn't for John. This was a personal question for those who were gathered there at the time. Jesus is speaking to these people. What did you go out to see? A reed shaken in the wind? A man clothed in soft raiment? Were you caught up in the hype? Did you go and see this great prophet? It's very personal. It was directed to them. Well, we read again, don't we, in verse 22 of the list of things that the, that Jesus did. The deaf, 
were healed. Lepers were cleansed. The poor had the gospel preached to them. That was personal. The gospel was preached to them. And this is the message that the gospel is a personal message. The gospel message goes out, but it is a personal message for each individual person. What does Jesus mean to you? A repeated question, a personal question. And then this leads us nicely into the answering of the question because it is an answered question. There's a, there's a psychological principle, um, or, or, or thought that you cannot not answer a question. So if somebody asks you a question, you will answer it in your head. Whether you verbalize that answer or not, you will answer that question. Um, as a very basic example, if I just said to you, what color is my tie? Whether you audibly say the answer, you have answered it and processed it in your mind. So that is quite, that is quite uh, an interesting thought because it is helpful to ask people questions because they will answer them themselves, whether they vocalize that or not, they will answer it to themselves. But Jesus asked the question, what did you go out to see? So those people would have answered the question themselves, but Jesus helped them by giving them some suggested answers. Did you go out to see a reed shaken in the wind? Did you go out to see a man clothed in soft raiment? Did you go out to see a prophet? Did you go out to satisfy your curiosity? But he's given three statements. He's put three suggestions out there for these people. He answered the question for them. He went, he answered what they were thinking. But then he develops his own answer, doesn't he? And he explains that so much more in verses 27 and 28. So the first point we have here is what went ye out to see? That was the question. And it was repeated for emphasis because it was important. It was a personal question. It was directed to those who were there in person. And so is the gospel message. It is a personal message. It is not for the person next to you. It is for you. And Jesus answered the question by building a picture, by asking the question three times and answering it three times. He developed points that he then went on to expound. And what we see in his explanation of this is the greatness of John and then the lowliness of John in quick succession and in complete harmony with each other. What went ye out to see? Because the, the, the Jews would have had to go into the wilderness. They wouldn't have wanted to leave the safety and comfort and status that they had in the in the temple and in the city. They had to go out to see what this man was all about. A reed shaken in the wind. Anybody who knows anything of John the Baptist will know that he was anything but a reed shaken in the wind. We will read of him in in, um, in, in Mark's uh, Matthew's gospel, calling them a generation of vipers. 
Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You generation of vipers. You're confusing the people. I'll just turn to that, Matthew chapter 3. <coughs> and the same John had his raiment, camel's hair, a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. And so it carries on. He didn't bow to public opinion. He didn't bow to political pressure. He had one job and he fulfilled his one job with all his being. His one job was to preach Jesus Christ. And that really is our one job as Christians, to preach Jesus Christ. He was not a reed shaken by popular uh, opinion. He was not one that would be blown by whatever wind of doctrine. He preached Jesus Christ. Wise man builds his house upon a rock. And here we see John the Baptist as a man who built his house upon the rock of Jesus Christ. He wasn't shaken. He wasn't afraid. He preached the gospel. He preached Jesus Christ. And he had the privilege of uttering perhaps the greatest statement in the whole of the Bible. Behold, the Lamb of God. You can maybe put Peter in that category as well. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Mary perhaps also with Rabboni, my master. But what a, what a privilege for John to be able to be the one to say, as Jesus approached, behold, the Lamb of God, which take away, taketh away the sin of the world. This was the man, John. He was not a reed shaken. He was steadfast. He was unshakable. The second question, but what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment. Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in the king's courts. And we just read in, in Matthew's gospel there that John was clothed in basically um, rough clothing. Um, no fine apparel, no delicate eating, no comfortable living. Now, you kind of imagine that somebody with that popularity and, and fame could quite comfortably have risen through the ranks in, in uh, Jerusalem. You could imagine John being in the courts of the king. You could imagine, if he had compromised, that he could have had gorgeous apparel and lived delicately. If he had compromised and preached what the people wanted to hear, 
in in um, I think is it in Isaiah's gospel they tell Isaiah just tell us what we want to hear. Um, and John could have risen very quickly. You would imagine. You could imagine with his presence being so popular, he could have been in the king's courts rather than in the king's prison where he was and where he ended his earthly days. He was in the world, but he was not of the world. He was not in the palace, he was in the wilderness or in prison. But he was not a man seeking earthly popularity. He was a man seeking to fulfill and to discharge his duty of preaching Jesus Christ alone. And again, there's a challenge in it and, and an encouragement for us. Whatever we have in this world to be thankful for, but don't compromise to get more, to gain status, to gain wealth, to gain popularity. We have a duty to preach Christ and to talk of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Saviour. That is the true riches, isn't it? That is true blessing, to be able to speak of our God, to speak of our Lord, to speak of our Saviour. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Well, these people were getting closer because John was a prophet. And in many senses, he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. What went ye out to see? A prophet? It's interesting, though, that we talk of him being a prophet because he himself was prophesied. Verse 27, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. And we have that from Malachi. But we also have reference to John the Baptist in um, in Isaiah. So he is referenced at least twice in the Old Testament as the one who would prepare the way for Jesus. And what do we know of his birth? We know that he was marked out for this before he was born, when the mother of uh, Jesus went to visit Elizabeth, the babe John, as he was to be, leapt in her womb. And he was marked out before his physical birth for this very purpose. So not only was he a prophet, but he was prophesied of. So he was a prophet predicted. So he was steadfast and unshakable. He was in the world, but he was not of this world. He was a prophet, and he was a prophet that was predicted. But the greatness of John really comes down to the nature of his ministry. Because he was the final Old Testament prophet. He was the final prophet before the Messiah came. He was the one who pointed the way. And he was the one who got to say, Behold, the Lamb of God. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses even, and through the Psalms we read of those prophesying the coming Messiah. But Jesus was the one, uh, uh, sorry, John the Baptist was the one 
who was the one who physically saw him and said, Behold, behold, the Lamb of God. So his ministry was to be the final prophet, the final one to point the way to Christ. He saw Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. He also understood his place. And this is an act of greatness, really, to know your place. His place was to prepare the way. And he prepared the way. And when that way was prepared, he said, I must decrease so that he must increase. And we have an account of him telling his disciples, no, this is this is Jesus. If Go, follow him. So his disciples were then to leave him and follow Jesus. And that was what John encouraged them to do. He understood he wasn't even worthy to undo the laces or the, 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 the latchet on his shoes. He had such reverence and respect for Jesus as the Son of God. And we can draw again many examples from this. Do we point people to Christ? Do we decrease ourselves, as it were, so that we can amplify and increase him in in the sight of others? Do we still have a reverence for God and for our Saviour Jesus Christ? To the point where we feel as though we are not worthy to unleash his shoes. Do we feel as though when we enter his presence, we should be taking off our shoes because the place whereon we stand is holy ground? Do we have same ministry as John, pointing people to Christ with such a heartfelt reverence and respect? So there is the greatness of John. He was steadfast and unshakable. He was in the world, but he was not of the world. And he knew his place in the world and he knew his duty in the world. He was a prophet. He was the final prophet and he was a prophet that was predicted. And the nature of his ministry. We see what a great ministry he had. But we also see the lowliness of John. For I say unto you, among those that are born of of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So on the one hand, Jesus is extolling him, saying there is no greater prophet than John the Baptist. But then on the other hand, he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. So from being a great man, he is the least in the kingdom of God, in a sense. He was a great man. He had a great message. But he had a partial message. I'm going to share a quote with you from J.C. Ryle, which I found the other week that was quite helpful. John J.C. Ryle says, The hopes of John the Baptist and Paul were undoubtedly one and the same. Both were led by one spirit. Both knew their sinfulness. Both trusted in the Lamb of God. But we cannot suppose that John could have given as full an account of the way of salvation as Paul. 
Both looked at the same object of faith, but one saw it afar off and could only describe it generally. The other saw it close at hand and could describe the reason of his hope particularly. Let us learn to be more thankful. The child who knows the story of the cross possesses a key of religious knowledge, which patriarchs and prophets never enjoyed. So here we see the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Those who are in a position to be able to preach and teach the full gospel. We have seen with the eyes of faith and through the words of scripture. The death, burial and resurrection and glorification of our saviour Jesus Christ. John looked forward. He never saw that great um event he would look forward though with the eyes of faith he would see it with the eyes of faith but not fully understand and appreciate as we can now so the lowliness of john does one more thing yes he was a great man yes he had a great message perhaps the greatest message to that point but it was a partial message so what does that teach us It teaches us to look beyond John and to look to Christ. This teaches us that John, even as as somebody once said, even the best of men are at best men. We look beyond, we look to Jesus. John's great task was to point to Jesus. So what do we do with this information? What do we do with what we've just read? What do we think about here? Well, we do the same as John, really, don't we? We do the same as John the Baptist. We preach Jesus Christ. We preach the full gospel. We preach it all. We preach that Jesus Christ came into this world. We preach that Jesus Christ died to take away our sin. John said, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. He knew that Jesus was the one to take away the sin of the world. Now, how did he do that? He did it by dying on the cross in our place and for our sins. He shed his blood on Calvary's tree. Why couldn't we stand in for our sins because we are sinful creatures we could not satisfy God we cannot satisfy a righteous and holy God because we are sinful creatures our sacrifices would be tainted and tarnished in Leviticus chapter 1 the sacrifice we are told has to be a lamb without blemish and we are full of blemish There has to be one to satisfy the demands, to pay the price of a righteous and holy God. And that one has to be somebody who was sinless. And this is why Jesus came in and John called him the Lamb of God. The Lamb, the sacrifice that was accepted, the spotless Lamb who could satisfy the demands of a righteous God. What came ye 
out to sea. Did you come out to see the great saviour? Did you come out to see the one who can take away your sins if you confess your sins before him and ask for his forgiveness? This is the message that John was pointing us to. This is the message the Old Testament points us to. Come see. Come see the one who can take away the sin of the world. And we have that in Jesus Christ. Be mindful of these thoughts from John the Baptist or these questions that John had that triggered this great conversation, that triggered Jesus to open up and explain himself. Through talking about John, he explained himself further. John was a prophet and John came to preach Jesus Christ. John came to stand back once Jesus Christ was here. May we do that also. As we speak to others, may they not see ourselves, but may they see Jesus Christ. Ask yourself this question. Have you come out to the wilderness? Have you come out to see Jesus Christ? Have you come out to see the Lamb of God, the one who can take away your sins? And if not, I challenge you to think on these things as you go home and ask Jesus to come into your heart to take away your sins. For he alone can save you. Amen.